In the news uh, this past week, uh, actually this past day, uh, there was an interesting development overseas. And I don't know how many of you follow kind of the foreign news cycle. I'm very interested in what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Israel, what's happening in the Middle East. It fascinates me. I I, I like to keep tabs on all of those things. And the the latest headline that I saw recently was this. Egypt disqualifies ten presidential candidates, including two major Islamists. This was a headline from just yesterday. In fact, I cut and pasted it from this morning just to make sure I had the most recent uh, updated article. Now, many of you may or may not know what's happening in Egypt, but in Egypt there's been a, a, a revolt, if you will, of the people against their previous regime, against the previous uh, uh, government. And the people have risen up. And ever since that time from the Arab Spring, there's been a wrestle and a vying for power in Egypt. There have been different groups who have been vying for power. And one such group are the Islamists. And by and large, they're given that term because of their rigid and firm commitment to Islam, but also due to their tendency toward violence. Particularly violence toward anyone who would be opposed to the Muslim religion. In particular, Christians, Coptic Christians, have received much violence at the hands of Islamists. And so when I saw this article the other day, when I saw all over uh, you know, the LA Times, the New York Times, and here the Al Arabia News, and, and the Jerusalem Post, and all over the world, they were popping up headlines everywhere. Wow! Egypt has barred presidential candidates who espouse uh, extremist Islamic ideology. And to that, many people in the West went, Hooray! Many Christians went, Hooray! What a wonderful thing this is! And there was great celebration in the last 24 hours. And my initial reaction, my initial impulse, when I saw that headline was to say, Wow! Maybe Egypt has a chance. And then I got to thinking as I looked at that headline more. And I considered... It's, it's funny, but if I were to change one little word, my reaction would have been dramatically different. And let me show you what that word is. How do you react now? Right? Now you look at it and go, oh, that's awful! How could they do that? How could they disqualify Christians? That's injustice! That's, that's the, the antithesis of religious liberty. What an awful thing. And yet, we put the word Islamist up there and we do what? We celebrate it, right? Everyone is happy when their group gets justice. When the people they prefer get preferential treatment. But as we'll see in our Bible story today, and we're going to be in the book of Exodus chapter 23 if you want to turn there. As we'll see in the law of Moses today, God is not about giving preferential treatment. He is not a God of partiality. He is not a God of preference. He does not look at one group and say, only this subset of this subset of this subset are going to be blessed by Me. That's not how our God operates. In fact, the Scriptures are quite clear. He sends rain on the righteous and on the just. 
and on the unjust. He sends rain on the, on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. Our God is a God of impartiality. And we look at these headlines, and if it's one side of the table, we cheer. But if it's the other side of the table, we say, whoa, 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 that's really awful. That shouldn't have happened. I want us today to reconsider our preconceptions about the groups that we're associated with. I want us today to reconsider how we react to articles like this one, to headlines like this one, where we would normally react so positively, but then if it was changed just one little word, ah, but now we would react so negatively. I want us to reconsider and challenge those assumptions in light of God's Word today. Would you stand with me as we read from Exodus chapter 23? Exodus 23, we're going to read verses 1 through 9 together. The title of my message, by the way, the title of this message is Before Impulse, Take a Spiritual Pulse. Before making an impulsive judgment, stop and take a spiritual pulse. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. He says, the law of Moses says, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely put it back, uh, bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You may be seated. What's the context here in Exodus? We're we're doing some uh, more topical messages in the forthcoming uh, weeks. and, and, And here we are jumping into Exodus 23 and we're saying, where are we? What are we doing here? What's happening in the book of Exodus? Well, in Exodus, you have the story, really, of the Jewish people leaving Egypt and being instructed in the law of God. Truth. Truth was critical as as Moses approached his people in Egypt. He had to give them the truth of God and persuade them, in truth, to follow him to the promised land. Truth was critical. And according to uh, census reports in Israel, as they were, as they were counting the people and, and considering how many Jews they had with one, uh, in the group, how many Israelites were in the group, they counted some 600,000 men who were of military age, which is to say between the ages of 20 and say 40, maybe 50 at the most. 50-year-olds and above, are you still military age? Maybe not. Okay. So 20 to 50 or so. 600,000 men in that group that left Egypt to go to the Promised Land. If you were to add in other men, young men, women, and children, you'd have anywhere from 2 to 3 
million people left Egypt to go to the Promised Land. Two to three million people. That's twice the size of San Diego. Truth for that group was critical. They needed to know that the direction that they were headed was in a true and right direction. And false reports, falsehoods among the people would certainly lead them astray and cause chaos in the ranks. We have evidence in the book of Exodus that a false report would breed great trouble for Israel. Take, for instance, Exodus 32, in which the Jews were waiting at the base of the mountain while Moses was speaking to God. But after a few days had gone by, the people began to whisper. And in time, those whispers started trickling up to Moses' brother's ear, Aaron the, high, the priest. And in Exodus 32, verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. A false report. A false whisper. Something went awry. Moses went up the mountain. He was gone a few days. The people began to whisper. Two to three million, mind you. Two to three million people start a rumor, start a false report. We don't know what's going on with this Moses. He's long gone. He might be dead for all we know. It got up to the ears of the leader, Aaron, the priest. And thus, as you continue to read chapter 32, you have the story of the golden calf. They built a god. They built an idol. All because of a false report. And so in verse 1 of Exodus 23, it says, You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Consider the source. Consider where you're getting your information. That goes for us today. Where are you getting your information? Uh, It wasn't uh, three months ago that uh, that uh, the world the, the the state of Pennsylvania was in uproar over the uh, controversy surrounding Pennsylvania State University. Uh, coach Joe Paterno and his assistant coach Jerry Sandusky were embroiled in a very um, just unfortunate and egregious situation in which awful accusations had been made against the assistant coach and that the head coach had not reported in time. It was a very trying time for the university, for all the families involved, and it was just kind of gut-wrenching to go through that moment. But there was a report, you may not have known this, there was a report on January 21st that Joe Paterno, had, in fact, uh, he, was, he was afflicted with lung cancer. And there was a report on the evening of January 21st that Joe Paterno had died. It came out on Twitter. Someone from the university had tweeted. They had literally gone on a computer or gone on their phone and tweeted that Coach Joe Paterno has died of lung cancer. Well, that got the ball rolling. And all of a sudden, all these news agencies, CBS, NBC, the Huffington Post, all of these news outlets and internet outlets started repeating the story, all from a simple tweet from a university source that Joe Paterno was dead. And it had gone all the way up for about 45 minutes. The only problem was, he wasn't dead. He was dying of lung cancer. And in fact, he even died the very next day. 
But for 45 minutes on January 21st, the whole world thought Joe Paterno had died all because someone had started a false report. Where do you get your information from? Do you get them from credible sources? Do you jump to false conclusions? Aaron, in Exodus, listened to the whispers of those below him. He had, he had known Moses. Moses was his brother. He had seen what Moses did. My goodness, the plagues of Egypt, pulling them out of, uh, uh, under Pharaoh's hand and moving them in a direction that was full of life and potential. And yes, they were in the desert. Yes, they were in the wilderness. And it was trying. But for Aaron to hear the sources below him that, hey, Moses, he's long gone. And, and to act on that so quickly. How shameful. How shameful. So often we enjoy jumping to conclusions when the opinion of the crowd starts swaying one way or the other. And before we can make an intelligent and an informed decision, we just simply jump because the sway of public opinion has gone in such and such direction. Look at verse 2. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You know, crowds are infectious, aren't they? Crowds are infectious. When you see a demonstration of people like with masses of people holding signs, it always draws your attention, doesn't it? Down here in Orange County, we don't see that very often. We don't see a lot of crowds and demonstrations. I do remember five years ago, seeing a crowd of demonstration right out here. We were, we were driving up and there was the controversy between a student and a professor at Capitol Valley High School. And they were, the student was a Christian and the, and the professor was an atheist and the student was suing the professor for, for disparaging statements about Christianity. And there were signs and there were people demonstrating for weeks. And as I would come to work, uh, you, you didn't see it because you come on Sundays. Well, for those that come midweek, um, it was fascinating to watch. And then dur- during the Prop 8, you know, uh, whether we were going to have traditional marriage between a man and a woman or, or gay marriage. There were people for and against Prop 8 on street corners. How many of you saw them? Okay, you always you saw them, right? And people are honking for every different side. Well, here's some more uh, demonstrations that we've seen recently. We've got tax demonstrations. We've got demonstrations from the left and from the right. We've got abortion and, 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 and pro-life. We've got Occupy Wall Street. We've seen demonstrations and demonstrations and demonstrations not, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. And it's likely, as you look at these images, it's likely that each of you have an immediate reaction to each of these images. Each of you, it is likely, have an immediate reaction to the images that I'm showing you now. For or against. Yes or no. True or false. And you look at those signs and you look at those images and you think, yes, no, that's right. No, that's not right. Each of us have those opinions. We look at the crowds and we want to either affiliate or distance ourselves. But then there's uh, been another controversy that's been embroiled in the news recently and it's been very, very, very sad to watch. And it is this controversy. It is uh, this young man. And uh, Trayvon Martin, 
and George Zimmerman. How many of you are familiar with this story? Just about every single one of you. Um, Trayvon uh, Martin and George Zimmerman, we don't know what happened. All, all we know, we're, we're starting to learn the facts, is that two men had an altercation, uh, excuse me, a high school teenager and a man had an altercation and uh, the high school teenager ended up dead. And it's very, very sad to watch our culture right now taking sides so vehemently on this issue. You have some groups who are vowing to take vigilante justice in defense of Trayvon Martin's death. You have some groups vowing that they are going to find the perpetrator, Mr. Zimmerman, and they put a bounty on his head. You have other groups who are vowing vehemently to defend the one who killed Trayvon. And they're offering him money. And they've even set up websites where funds are being donated to demonstrate that Mr. Zimmerman is in fact innocent. You have men with the title reverend before their name being anything but reverent. Being anything but showing discretion in a matter like this. You have members of Congress on both sides saying things that you wonder, um, you wonder what constitution they're reading. Exodus 23.2 You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Our culture, friends, relishes impulsiveness. And the Bible tells us Slow down. Why rush to judgment? What value is there in taking a side before the facts are laid bare? Slow down. Rather than jumping impulsively, why not pause and take a spiritual pulse? You know, as I consider the, the controversy that we're embroiled in now as a nation, it, it really it's sad. I, I feel awful uh, for the family of the victim. I also feel awful for the family of the alleged perpetrator. I think that on all sides it is just egregious and sad what is happening in our culture. How we are rushing to, to, to promote that this person's guilty or this person's innocent. To, to, to fund his defense or to you know, take vigilante justice. This is crazy what our culture is doing with this. But it reminds me of another situation of a crowd. In the Gospels. You might remember it. John chapter 8. Let's take a look. Now early in the morning, He, Jesus, came again into the temple. And all the people came to Him. And He sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? The crowd was in full force. Dozens of scribes and Pharisees, perhaps hundreds of people, had all come to Jesus, dragging this woman before Him. And here's the fascinating part. Ready for it? Everything the crowd said was true. Everything. 
was true. This woman was an adulterer. How did they know? Some of them had caught her in the very act of adultery. I trust I don't need to describe what that means. They had walked in on it. It was a true claim. And witness upon witness were given. And the Pharisees and the scribes were riled up. And the crowds started getting bigger and bigger. And they started dragging this woman and set her right before Jesus and said, Jesus, this woman is an adulteress. True. True statement. We saw her in the act. We have witnesses. The law tells us, Jesus, that she is to be stoned right here, right now. What do you say? Everything the crowd said was true. Uh, Up until this point, um, we have been demonstrating in this message that it's best to withhold judgment until the facts are known. It's best to withhold judgment and don't jump and take sides until you have a good and firm grasp on the truth. Well, here, in John 8, before a large crowd, Jesus has a firm and clear grasp on the truth. She is an adulterer. The law does tell us to stone her. Read Leviticus 20, verse 10. Yet faced with a crowd who are even telling the truth, Take note how Jesus responds in verse 6. He says this, But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with His finger, as though He did not hear them. So when they continued asking Him, He raised Himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her first. And again, He stooped down and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised Himself up and saw no one but the woman, He said to her, Woman, where are the accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here was a crowd that had spoken the truth. And yet Jesus did not entrust Himself to a crowd who spoke the truth. Why? Could it be said that even truth can be maligned with poor motivation? Even truth can be maligned by poor intentions. On your outline, a lesson from Exodus 23. The first lesson. Always pursue truth. But check your motivations. Always pursue truth. But check your motivations. This crowd wanted to kill her. They were bloodthirsty. The crowd willfully, willfully, think about this, overlooked the man's sin. Where's the man? 
in John 8. Nowhere did he commit adultery. Did he do something that was not clean? Did he fornicate himself? Yes. But there wasn't a man brought to Jesus, was there? It was just the woman. Just one side of the coin. And this crowd was playing, playing with a human life like it was a game. Like they would trip Jesus up. Like they would test Him, as it says in verse 6. The early part of verse 6 reads, This they said, testing Him, that they might have something of which to accuse Jesus. Truth can be maligned by poor motivation, poor intentions of a crowd. And so when you see a crowd, your natural tendency will be to either shower that crowd with support or with disdain, depending on what they look like or what signs they're holding. And when you see the media or a majority of public opinion all swaying in one direction, your natural tendency will be to either support it or show disdain for it. But all the while, remember this, slow down. Remember the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. That even if the crowd speaks truth, they could be wrong based on their intention, based on what is motivating that truth. Be not impulsive. Take a spiritual pulse. We continue on in Exodus 23, beginning in verse 3. Moses Quoting the Lord here in the law says, You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Well, we got two things going on here in these passages, three through six. The first is dealing with the poor, and it's on the outskirts, almost like a, a chiastic structure, they, they call it. Uh, in verse three, in verse six, notice the highlight there. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. In verse six, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. The Bible speaks often about the poor. And generally speaking, the Scriptures say two things about the poor. Number one, give to the poor. Give to the poor. And number two, defend the poor. Defend the poor. That's, the, that's what the Bible says over and over again about those less fortunate. Give to them and defend them. Give to them and defend them. And those are both very honorable and worthy of imitation, those biblical concepts. They're good for us to pay heed to. And every church should be a benevolent church. Every Christian should be a benevolent Christian toward the poor. But some have used the Bible's sensitivity to the poor to justify a universally impulsive kind of favor toward the poor. That is, showing favor to the poor in all things, even with respect to the law. In our modern day, judges are now being appointed to, of course, execute justice and to follow the Constitution. But now they're also being admonished by both political leaders and by the public to show empathy in their justice. To show empathy to the poor. To show empathy to the disenfranchised. To show empathy to those less fortunate. They're being urged, judges in our nation, in our land, they're being urged to show extra favor to a plaintiff or to a defendant if they are of a lower social class 
than the person that they're suing against or that the person who's suing them. Now, the Bible is filled with many admonitions to show empathy to the poor. But when it, and those, those admonitions are restricted to the fact that, hey, show empathy when they need provision. Show empathy when they need food. Show empathy when they need help. But when a person commits a crime, it matters not whether that person is a man or a woman, whether they're white or black, whether they're poor or rich. What matters is that the truth be considered impartially. And verse 3 says of Exodus 23, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Verse 6 continues the thought, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. This nation, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, were founded on the ideals of justice without any hint of partiality. We say a pledge of allegiance and it closes with liberty and justice for how many? For all. For all. For all. Where do we get that ideal? Exodus 23. You see, the Bible is filled with admonitions. Be generous to the poor. Provide for the poor. Help the poor. Show care and understanding to the poor. But when it comes to matters of justice, when it comes to executing judgment, when it comes to judges and the government and and people deciding on matters of of civic policy, uh, of crimes that have happened, to consider the color of their skin, to consider their social status, to consider their gender, these things should be so foreign, so foreign to us when we consider matters of justice. So when you settle a dispute, you might be thinking, well, I'm not a judge. Well, sure you are. You're a judge all the time. Are you a parent? You're a judge. Right? Bennett and Mallory. He took my toy! She hit me! You know, all day long, right? All day long. He hit me. She scratched me. Wah, wah, wah. I have to judge, right? And you know who I always want to favor? Mallory. Oh, Bennett! What did you do? It doesn't matter if the guy's bleeding. The kid's bleeding. And I'll be like, Bennett, what did you do to her? I want to show partiality. Why? Because I have a soft spot, a soft spot in my heart for Mallory. And I love my son too. But I mean, Mallory just, you know, she just has that little extra place in daddy's heart. You know what though? When we're called upon to judge in a situation, be it a parent or be it a judge standing before, you know, in a very official setting, gender, race, social standing, none of those things matter. They don't matter a lick. Justice for all. Moses is quite clear. Be benevolent. Be gracious. Be helpful. But when it comes to matters of justice, you look at the plain facts of the case and you judge with equity, with impartiality. You judge with wisdom, with fairness. And that doesn't mean we're cold-hearted. It doesn't mean we're cold-hearted. Quite, quite frankly, it's just the opposite. Look at verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, 
you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, or you know, afflicted, maybe a broken leg of some kind, and you would refrain from helping it? No. You shall surely help him with it. Moses, Moses, through the law of God, says you go out of your way to help people. You go out of your way on a personal level to minister to those who are less fortunate, to the needy, to those who need help, to your enemy, for crying out loud. If your enemy's own property is, is being afflicted, you help him in his time of need. Even if your enemy is hurting, you reach out. The impulsive thing to do when your enemy is down is to kick him. But the Bible says, bless him. Lessons from Exodus 23, number 2. Always show impartiality, but have love for all. Always show, on your outline, always show impartiality, but have love for all. So we have truth checked by motivation. And we have impartiality checked by love. They have to be in balance. They have to be in balance. Or else we, could, we, we, we can go in a direction that is not godly, that is not in pursuit of a biblical view of truth and love. We close with verses 7, 8, and 9 in Exodus 23. Moses in the law writes, Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Verse 7, so once again he says, avoid spreading falsehood and gossip. Avoid it entirely. Consider the source again. Uh, it, was, it wasn't even a month or two ago that I, I came, uh, it, it was Awana, and uh, I, had, I received a couple reports from people that a man that we had been praying for ha- had passed, uh, Yusuf Nadarkhani in Iran. Uh, he is imprisoned there, and he is awaiting execution. And there were rumors spread on the internet that he had, in fact, been executed, this pastor who we've been praying for. And I, I remember getting the news from someone, and I, I said to myself, Okay, I was, I was hesitant because I knew that there were just flying rumors all over about what was happening to this man. And so I waited before I, I acted on it. I waited before I passed it on. Sure enough, an hour later, I read another article that said, oh, no, those reports were false. He's still alive. Well, today, there's more rumors about this pastor. And I don't know if they're true or false. But I'm waiting, I'm waiting. The, the rumors now are is that he doesn't believe in the Trinity I don't know. There's, there's some articles that actually seem to suggest that. This pastor may not be Trinitarian. Um, other articles seem to suggest otherwise. Me, I'm looking at this and I say, you know what? It doesn't affect my prayer for this man. It, it, well, it affects it in certain ways, but it doesn't affect it in other ways because I'm praying for religious liberty. Whether he's in a cult or whether he is a Christian pastor, he is being imprisoned for his faith. And I find that objectionable. And so I continue to pray for this man. I don't know if he's Trinitarian or not. If he isn't, I pray for his salvation. If he is, I pray that these rumors would stop. But the point is, wait on information. Wait on the sources. 
And say to yourself, is this credible? Goodness gracious, we live in an age of the internet where with one tweet, with one Facebook status update, you can change the world by what you say. And what you put in there, you can never take back. Speak truth. Wait on truth. Be slow to judge. Verse 8, You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning, perverts the words of the righteous. I doubt many of you have been physically offered a bribe. I doubt that. I'm sure some of you have. But you know what? Bribes can often come in disguise too. They can be subtle. They can be very subtle. A uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of business decision. Bribes are out there. Sometimes they're not an exchange of money. Sometimes they're an exchange of power. An exchange of position. To make a decision in a certain way that would protect such and such and so and so. To make a decision in such a way that would protect your own interests, even though it wasn't the wisest course of action. The Bible says make decisions with equity, with fairness. Do not embrace loyalty before truth. Do not embrace loyalty before truth. Do not be loyal to someone and overlook what is true and right and good in that situation. Truth before loyalty. Truth is built. Excuse me, loyalty is built on a bed of truth. And you might want to ask yourself, have I ever done something that was right, even though it personally brought me harm? Have I ever done something that was right, even though personally and in my family and with my pocketbook and with my job, it harmed me? But I did it anyway because it was right. It was the right thing to do. Verse 9, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Just as we learned, uh, just as we've learned over and over in Scripture, boy, Paul says, uh, you know, when I consider about who is a sinner out there, he says, I am chief. I am the chief of sinners, Paul would say. And that goes for all of us. We, we, we realize where we've come from where we've been, and we look back over the course of our life and we say, my goodness, why would I oppress anyone, anyone else, when I know how, how hard it's been in my life? I've come through sin and pain and difficulty, and it's been a long road, but I'm, I am where I am by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. Far be it from me to oppress anyone else, to point the finger at anyone else, because I know what it was like to be in bondage. I know what it was like to be in Egypt. The lesson, the third lesson, the first one is this. Always pursue truth, but check your motivation. Always show impartiality, but have love for all. Lastly, do not be impulsive in judgment. Instead, pause and take a spiritual pulse. Consider, is this something that is wise and prudent and good? We don't need to rush to judgment. Better is the man who is slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to wrath. In closing, uh, there's there's new um, 
laws on the books in certain states that are coming out. Many Christians are celebrating these laws. Uh, they are uh, a new, I think it's in Nebraska and Virginia and some of these other places, I think in Texas as well. They're passing laws um, with a conservative-leaning legislature. So a conservative legislature are passing laws and governors are signing them into law that before a woman can have an abortion, she must first be forced to look at a picture of her ultrasound. So in certain states across the Union... Before a woman can now have an abortion, she must first look at a picture of her baby um, from the ultrasound. And to that, many Christians say, wow, what a great thing. What a great thing that, those, that these women who are making this awful and terrible decision, that these women are forced now to look at this image and then make the decision whether or not they're going to have an abortion. And I know many Christians have been applauding these decisions and many other uh, states with conservative-leaning legislatures are rapidly passing up these laws. And our impulse as believers is to say, wonderful, pro-life, biblical view of, of life, high view of life, what a wonderful thing. Maybe it will deter abortions. Maybe it will preserve life. Maybe it will avoid the loss of these children. And it probably will. But then what's to say, a few years down the road, when those states have different members within their ranks, maybe members in those states, representatives in those states, who don't hold your viewpoint, who don't hold the Bible's viewpoint, and who instead pass a law that every high school kid must read the Quran. Every junior high kid must be taught about the use of a condom. Every kindergartner is going to be read a book that talks about the two mommies. We applaud it on one side, and yet we decry it on the other. And I think the point is here, friends, we're all about a pursuit of truth. The Bible is truth. And we are people of the Word. We want to be pursuing truth. We want to be pursuing good. We want to be pursuing all things biblical. But when we force things, when we force people into truth, we need to check our motivation. When we think we're being so impartial and forcing people to take a look at an image... We need to remember, are we loving them by doing this? Or are we setting ourselves up for one day later on down the road when they force an image in our face that we don't want to look at? Truth must be checked by our motivation. Impartiality must be checked by love. Do not rush to judgment. Slow down. Evaluate it in full. And even when you're you're persuaded by a large crowd of even Christians that, hey, this woman's an adulterer. The truth says we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? Isn't it fascinating how He heard all of that truth and said, no way would I support that right now. 
slow down, take a spiritual pulse, check your motivation, check the love. It's the love of Christ in and through every judgment you make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, these are difficult matters. When we consider, um, Father, showing, making judgments between groups, making judgment calls, Lord, both from an official bench of a judge to being a parent on the ground. Lord, help us as Christians to not be persuaded by the crowd and by the mob mentality, be it Christian mobs or mobs that are very much opposed to the person of Jesus Christ. We look at Egypt, Lord, and we see that they're barring Islamists. And to that, we celebrate, Lord. We're so thrilled that perhaps the false teaching that Islamists espouse will be kept at bay in that nation. And yet, Lord, we know that it isn't but perhaps years away where that word Islamist will be substituted for Christian and we will decry it. So Father, we're, we're perplexed and it reminds us that by Your Spirit must we do all things. We must be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to wrath. I pray for judgment, uh, wise judgment among the people here at Coast Bible Church. I thank You, Lord, that we are a church um, that is trying, trying to follow Your Word and to follow the example of Jesus in such a way that would just change the world. And Lord, even when He was faced with a true statement about a woman who had sinned, a true consequence that was due her, even in the light of truth, Lord, He said, hold on. Watch those intentions. Watch those motivations. This is not a game that we're playing. This is someone's life. Help us, Lord, to weave through these difficult moments, some of these gray areas at times. May Your Spirit guide us. May He give us sensitivity as we pursue truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.